And this time I'd invite the kids, ages three to five, ages three to kindergarten. If your parents let you, feel free to head back to go towards Children's Church. Join Miss Susan in the back. And as the kids, age three to kindergarten, head back on there, I'll, I'll invite the rest of us to turn to Genesis chapter one. We'll be in Genesis one this morning. Last week we just focused on verses one and two. This morning we'll focus on verses three through twenty-five in the days of creation. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 just for context. We're going to focus on verses 3 through 25, and I'm reading from the NIV. If you'd like, if you want, you feel free to stand with me and stretch your legs, and in honor of God's word, you can stand as I read the whole chapter. If you want to stay seated, that's fine too. I'm going to read all of Genesis chapter 1 from the NIV, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said that the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the earth or let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You may be seated. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were once camping together. When night fell, they set up their campsite, they put up their tent, and they went to sleep. In the middle of the night, Holmes woke Watson up from his sleep and told him, Watson, in this clear and remote sky, look up at the stars and tell me what you deduce. Watson responded, I see millions of stars. And even if a few of those have planets, it's quite likely there are some planets like Earth. And if there are a few planets like Earth out there, there might also be life on some distant planet. And Holmes replied, No, Watson, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> Sometimes we were trying to put all the little pieces together and figure out all the details of things, we might miss the most obvious truths. The truths that are right in front of our face, like our tent is gone. This is often the case when Christians study the first couple chapters of Genesis. We try and read between the lines and figure out all the things and all the, the truths, and we speculate on the, the timing and the age of things and how it all happened, and we miss the most obvious truths that are right in front of us. That's especially true when we look at the six days of creation in Genesis 1. There is much, much debate about these six days amongst faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who look at these six days differently and try to figure out what's going on and there's a temptation to miss the most obvious truths in front of us. One of the debates, I'm just going to spend a few moments on this because it's so prominent and just for our edification, there's a debate about these six days and the debate is, are they six, uh, for lack of a better term, literal 24-hour days? Or do these days represent some period of time that is unknown that may be quite longer? And for some of you, you'll hear that debate and you'll say, well, it's obvious, it's this one. That's clearly what the text says. And, and I want to point out to us, just as we begin, that there are... A, many different views of how to interpret Genesis 1. There are 
good, faithful Christians throughout history on each side of this particular debate are these six literal 24-hour days. And there are cases to be made from the text itself which land people in different places. I want to make that point clear that as we come to interpret Genesis 1 and other chapters in the Bible, we always want to do so on Scripture's own terms. Our goal in interpretation is not to land somewhere that is maybe more conservative or land somewhere that is maybe more progressive. Our goal is to land where we can be faithful to hear the text as it speaks to us. And we may face pressure uh, from all sides or different places to come up with a certain interpretation. But our goal, and my goal, I hope, by the grace of God always, is to figure out what is the text saying by the text design, by the intent of the author, what is he saying to us? And even then, you may come out of the other side and have disagreements. But let's go in with the right heart. And what I want to do, just briefly at the beginning, is give you a case for and a case against six literal 24-hour days. There are some who look at this and say, this clearly six 24-hour days. Why would they say that? Well, here are some reasons. One, you'll notice that Genesis 1 marks off each day with evening and morning, which seems to be a clear reference to standard days, an evening and a morning, a, what we would know as a 24-hour day. Some would also note that there's nothing in the context of Genesis 1 that suggests long periods of time. But it seems to speak plainly of six standard days. And some might accuse the desire to interpret the text otherwise comes from a desire to appease cultural forces or scientific community. And some will note that God does not need lengthy amounts of time to create. As he speaks all things into existence, it's not hard for God to make all things in six days or parts of all creation in one day. God also has the power to create a fully functioning, mature world that appears to look like it's been around for a while. And he can do that in six days. Also, when the Ten Commandments tell us to honor the Sabbath, that command is based on God's creating the world in six normal days and resting on the seventh. The very command of rest on the seventh day is, some will argue, based upon this six days of work, one day of rest pattern. Others on the other side, however, would argue that the days of creation do not take place in six 24-hour days, that these days are symbolic, representing some unknown, perhaps quite long period of time. Why do some people not take this as six literal 24-hour days as Are they not believing what Scripture plainly says? No, there actually are good biblical interpretive reasons to come up to that conclusion. First, you'll notice the sun, moon, and stars, which were created for the very purpose of organizing days and years, are not created until day four. According to the text, also, the seventh day, and you'll see this, never has an ending. There's no encapsulating closure to the seventh day of God's rest. Also, some will know that when we use the word day, it doesn't always refer to a literal 24-hour period. When you say, back in my day, you don't mean a Tuesday. You mean a period of time. Scripture sometimes speaks the same way. Scripture uses day to talk about an era or a period. For example, Isaiah 61 says the servant of the Lord will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. 
That is not saying that the time of vengeance is a literal 24-hour period. It's just a, a period, an era, a day of vengeance of our God. Even more compelling, you can look at Genesis 2.4. The NIV doesn't translate it this way, which is a little bit unfortunate. But the Hebrew word for day is used in Genesis 2.4 to describe the whole time of God's creation. So I'll read the ESV translation. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That word for day is yom. It's the same word that's used in the six days of creation. Genesis 2.4 says that God created all those things in a day. So is it a literal 24-hour day? Genesis 2.4 says God created the whole heaven and earth in a day. Clearly there it means a longer period of time, an age or era. There are other reasons. Genesis 2.5 says that bushes and plants were not yet on the ground because man was not yet been created to keep them, which reverses the order of creation from Genesis 1. Also, as we'll see when we get there, it's hard to imagine all of Genesis 2 taking place on day 6. According to that timeline, God made Adam. Adam named all the animals on the earth. God saw that Adam was not alone. He had Adam sleep. He created a woman out of Adam all in one day. That's not impossible with God, but it seems like a lot to fit in one 24-hour day with Adam's participation. So there are good biblical reasons, biblically derived reasons, to look at this and say maybe it's not six literal 24-hour days, but maybe Moses is using this as a convention to just speak of an orderly creation. And you might ask, well, what do you believe, Aaron? And I would say, it doesn't matter. And in fact, I think maybe if we get to heaven and we ask God, so what was it? Six literal 24-hour days or a longer period of time, and he might say to us, that's what you got out of that? <laughs> it's maybe an important question. But that question misses the whole point of what Genesis 1 is all about. And the whole point of Genesis 1 is that God made everything. And he made all things good. And he made all things by the power of his word. The creative God who made all things good by the power of his word. That is, in fact, the main point of Genesis 1, the days of creation, that God made all things good by the power of his word. If you're here with us last week, you know where we left off in Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, and what was the earth like? It was formless and void. So that's the condition of the earth, formless and void, and the spirit hovering over the waters. So what is the earth like? It is without form, it is chaotic, it is disordered, and it is empty. So if God is going to make the world good, what must happen? He must form it, and he must fill it. And that's exactly what happens in the days of creation. Days one through three are days of forming. 
where God forms all the earth. Then, days four through six, which correspond perfectly with days one through three, are days of filling, where he fills all creation. Days of forming and filling. That's the structure of the whole account. You'll notice there that this is an artistic, poetic structuring to the account of creation. That Moses has composed this with a system, a poetic structure, a framework for describing the days of creation. That doesn't mean it's not historical. That doesn't mean this isn't describing history, but it's describing history in an artistic, poetic way, using a framework, a literary device, these days of creation. Moses doesn't write this like a science textbook. It would be a big book if you were to write down all the things that happened. We have one page in our Bible that talks about the creation of everything. So this is a summarized, orderly, creative, historical account of God's creation. And the point of all of it is this, that God makes all things good by the power of his word. We'll see that in, verse, in uh, days one through three. These are days of forming, where God takes this unformed, disordered, chaotic world and puts it into order in days of forming. I'm going to read the first three days again, starting in verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So we'll start with day one, right at the beginning. On the first day, God created the light and distinguished it from darkness. He called the light day, and he called the dark night. Which tells us something fascinating here, that not even light and dark are outside of God's control. That light and dark themselves are a part of his creation. Sometimes we think of these concepts of light and dark and time and matter and energy and all these things that almost forces outside of control. They're outside our control, but they're not outside of God's control. They're actually within the spheres of his creation. Light and dark itself are part of God's creation. He's not confined to them. In fact, he names them. It means he has ownership over them. And how does God create? Simply by his speech. Let there be, and it is so. It shows you how powerful he is. God does not have to tame forces. He doesn't have to wrestle things to the ground. He doesn't labor for months over this. He doesn't have to sweat over a blank page or an empty canvas. He speaks and it happens. His word is performative. His word is active. We don't have the power to move anything by our voice. I've told this before. I try sometimes. Maybe it's the influence of Harry Potter. But when the remote is across the room, Accio remote, and it doesn't, doesn't come to me. It never has worked. I can't move anything by the power of my voice. But God creates by the power of his word. 
That's why I believe in preaching and teaching and speaking the word of God. Because it does something. Because God creates and he heals and he restores and he moves by his word. And the fact that he creates by his speech also tells us something else. It tells us that God is distinct from his creation. There's a separation between creator and creation. There's a distinctness there. Uh, The creation is not birthed out of God's head like Athena was out of Zeus. Creation is not birthed from within him. God doesn't take a part of himself and make creation. There's no blurring of the line between creator and creation. God simply speaks and it exists. There's a distinctness between creation and the creator. Creation is not and never has been a part of the creator. One is God, the other is not. So God speaks light into existence. He separates darkness and light, calls the light day, the dark night. And he says this, that is repeated throughout the whole thing, is good. Which does not mean it is morally good. It means it is whole, it is perfect, it is complete, it is good for the purpose that God has for it. It is a perfected creation. And then evening and morning, the closing of the first day. On the first day, God separated light from darkness. On the second day, God separates the waters from one another, forming seas and sky. The text calls it a vault that separates them, or a canopy, or an expanse. It's a separation of the seas and the waters above. In Hebrew thinking, it was supposed that there was actually like a hard layer that circled the earth above the sky. We now call that an ozone layer. It's that layer that distinguishes space from sky, that... I'm not a chemist, I'm not a scientist, we know this, but they're full of water and oxygen and all gases and makes everything hospitable below. It's what God was doing as he separated the waters. He was making a hospitable space for his creation and separating the waters. You'll notice something here on the second day of the week. God does not give his assessment of it. It's the only day here he doesn't say it was good. Why? Some say that this is proof that even God doesn't like Mondays. That may be the reason. If you think that way, just know that it's biblical. More likely reason is that he's not quite done with the water yet. And he finishes his task with the waters on the third day. Moves the waters on the earth around and brings up dry land. He forms the earth into terrain of hills and valleys and plains and mountains that will sustain all life that lives on land. Some think this section refers to Pangea. Who knows? may or may not be so, but the point is God made a land, a place suitable for human life. And to do that, the land would not be formed just with endless rock and dirt, but with vegetation and trees and plants and shrubs, each according to their kind. And what we see here is God's creativity. He could have, if he had chosen, created a few kinds. Plants and shrubberies and trees and all that, but instead he creates a multitude of kinds. I looked this up. Apparently, there are 2,000 species of cacti. 2,000 species of a cactus. Why? There's no logical reason for that. There's no, uh, I can't think of any pragmatic reason you need 2,000 different kinds of cactus. It's just there to, I think it's just God showing off. (laughs) And show that He is creative. 
and that he delights in creation. Having created the dark and the light, the sea and the sky and land and plants and vegetation, it is by now clear that God formed everything in this world. And that is a big reason why Moses is writing this. Remember we talked about last week that these first five books of the Old Testament are written in the time when Israel was wandering out of Egypt into the Promised Land. They were surrounded by foreign nations who worshipped other gods. And Genesis 1 here is an argumentation against all those other nations, all those other religions that believe in foreign gods. Genesis 1 says, no, there is one God. And he is over all creation. You may look at the sun, moon, and stars, the waters and the seas, the sky, the plants, the animals, the fish, whatever it is. You may look at all creation and see there's a God there. And many other nations did have gods for all those different things. And Genesis 1 goes through all of them and says, nope, that's not God. That's not God. That's not God. That's not God. That is all creation. And it all exists under the rule and control of the one God who created it all. First, God formed all creation in the first three days, and then he fills it in days four through six. First three days were days of forming, the next three days are days of filling. Days of filling. I'll read verse 14 from there. We'll read about the next three days. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds increase on the earth. There is evening and there is morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. We'll stop there and save humanity for next week. We move to the fourth day, and on the fourth day, God made sun, moon, and stars. It refers to sun and moon as the greater and lesser lights. And of course, we know scientifically that the moon technically isn't a light. It's a rock that reflects light. But, just practically speaking, it's very correct to say it's a light. From our perspective, on sitting here on the earth, it lights up the night sky. And that is how Scripture speaks practically about it. And again, it shows God's greatness that He created the sun, moon, and stars. What's the worst sunburn you've ever had? How, how long are you able to stare into the sun? Don't play this game. Kids, I'm just warning you. Don't play. But 
What happens if you just stare into the sun for a while? It's going to hurt your eyes. That's amazing. 91.4 million miles away, the sun can hurt you. The sun can damage you from that far away. And yet it is no threat to God. He created it. He could hold it in his hands, as it were. Because he's the one who created it. He is over it. He is over the sun, moon, stars. And what is the purpose of these things that God placed in the light and the darkness? Their purpose, as the text says, is to mark out days and years and sacred times. It's how we get our calendar. It's how we know what days are when. By sun and moon and stars. They mark off our days, our years, our rhythms, so that we may worship. They're created, as the text says, to mark out sacred days. All these things are not gods themselves. In fact, they're tools by God that we use so that we may know when and how to worship him. And notice something else about this. Notice the correspondence between the first day and the fourth. On the first day of forming, light and dark. On the fourth day of filling, sun, moon, and stars. Day four corresponds to day one. The same will be true of day five, and day two, and day six, and day three. On the second day, God created the sea and the sky. And what does God create on the fifth day? Fish and birds. Each according to their kind, all of them made by God. According to one BBC article, the ocean covers 70% of the Earth's surface, and yet 80% of the ocean is unexplored. It's often claimed that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about our own ocean floors. The reality is we have no idea what might be down there. James Cameron's trying to find out, but we don't know. We only know God made it. God has control over it. Even the great sea creatures. There's this word here, great creatures. The Hebrew word for it is tannin. And that word tannin actually pops up throughout Scripture in various places to describe several different things, kind of monsters that are dangerous for God's people. Sometimes the word is translated serpent, sometimes dragon. At one point, Pharaoh in Egypt is described with this word tannin. The word really means monster. And even the monsters in the sea are under the lordship of God. There's something else interesting here in this day of creation, the fifth day. God blesses the fish and the birds. He blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. He creates them, they may multiply, they may fill the space, the sky, the seas with life, that all of God's creation may be filled with that which he created. Just as the sun and the moon were made for the purpose of marking off days and years for worship, the fish and birds were made so that life would fill the sea and sky and bring praise to God. There would be no wasted space, no wasted expanse. All of it would be brimming with life that God made. And it's good. The last day of creation is day six. And just like God fills the sea and the sky, he fills the earth, the land, with animals. The text says that God created all the land animals, the livestock, those that crawl on the ground, wild animals. It's another way of saying all of them. All the animals, all created by God. And he calls it, what does he call it? Good. 
although he doesn't bless the land animals the same way he does the fish and the birds, which I find fascinating. It's almost as if that blessing, to be fruitful and multiply, is saved for another creation that will rule on the land. And we'll see that next week. We see here the world is being created good. It is ordered. It is under the rule and control of God. It is what some Christians have called a controlled universe. God has created a controlled universe. What do we mean by that? Well, that's in contrast to what some other faiths believe, that we live in an open universe. An open universe is what people who believe in animistic religions believe, that we live in an open universe that's controlled by spirits and deities. And that the way to get along in an open universe is to pray to and appease all those gods and spirits that control the earth. That there's really no room for science or or logic or reason or study of the earth because it's all chaos and it's all under the thumb of all these spirits that are whirling over the earth. So in those kind of faiths, the, the, the goal then, again, is to appease the spirits because they are over this open universe. On the opposite side of an open universe, there's the idea of a closed universe. A closed universe is where there are no gods. A closed universe is a universe where everything happens according to order. And it can all be scientifically studied. And there's no reason nor need to pray because all things happen predictably and ordered in a way that the creation, or it's not really creation, nature has ordered itself. That's a closed universe. Christians don't believe in either of those. An open or a closed universe. We believe in a controlled universe. In a controlled universe, things happen in an orderly fashion so they can be studied, predicted, known. There is a reason for scientific study because it is an ordered world. And yet miracles happen because there's a God over it all. And sometimes things happen that are outside of prediction, outside of our control, outside of what we would expect but they're not outside of God's control because he controls the universe. He, by his order and by his goodness, he creates things with structures that we may observe them and live in them. And then by his goodness and by his control, he does amazing things because he has a will and he is involved with his creation and he loves it and cares for it. We live in a universe controlled by God. So there's room for scientific explanation and there's room for prayer that God might be with us. The only way you get a controlled universe is if God is in control. All of this universe is an expression of his control, his goodness, his creativity, his care, and his love. We like to watch nature documentaries in our house. National Geographic, Planet Earth, what a wonderful programming for kids. One of our favorites recently is Deadliest Snakes. Great program, World's Deadliest Snakes. Simon wants that on repeat. Like, he loves that one. We'll get to that in Genesis 3. Um, but that's one of his favorites. But all these nature documentaries, they're missing something. They should all end with praise. You should have 45 minutes of documentation of how wonderful this world is, then 15 minutes of hymns singing how great is our God who made all this. How wonderful is he that he created all these things. It's how it should end. And that's the purpose of all this creation is to to show us how good and great our God is that we might devote ourselves to praise to him. So I have an assignment for you in light of that. This week, here's my homework assignment for you. Praise God for his creation. 
Go out and do something tangible that you might enjoy God's creation. That doesn't mean go on a hike. I'm not doing that. We heard earlier some people might like to do that. You can enjoy creation in a hammock. The sky looks real big laying down, right? So that's the way you can enjoy But what I want you to do for your own soul and for your worship of our God and Creator is maybe just for a moment lift your eyes off a screen, put the phone away, enjoy what God has made, and let it lead you to worship because He makes all things good by the power of His Word. And yet, as you're reflecting on God's creation and enjoying it somehow in some way, you may have this thought, it's not all good. Something has happened. At times, the world is suffering and can be miserable. There are things that are disordered. There are natural disasters that take lives. There are, as we mentioned last week, mosquitoes. The world can be inhospitable, cold and dangerous, and creation itself at times seems like it is dying. And then we look at ourselves and our own creation and we realize our bodies are not perfect either. Our minds fail us, our souls are troubled, our morals are corrupted, the intentions of our hearts are often selfish. And we may ask, what happened to creation? Or we may ask, what hope is there for this good world that God made? And here's the hope. The hope is God makes all things good by the power of his word. That just as he created through his word, he will recreate through his word all creation and all of us. As we look through the story of Genesis 1, I want you to look at Genesis 1 in a new way and say that that story is the story of how God saves his world. What does he do? He speaks light into darkness. By his word, he creates. When darkness is over the face of the earth, that God speaks and he saves his creation. When we read Genesis 1, we see that there is a creating God who loves his creation, who is in control over it, and that he will one day make it perfect by the power of his word, and that's exactly what he's doing now. It is no accident that the New Testament calls Jesus Christ the Word. That the second person of the Trinity is the Word. That the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That Word dwelt among us. That word took on flesh and lived among us. God's word, which creates, which saves, who became one of us and lived and died and took our sins on a cross and is now resurrected and ascended. God is, through his word, recreating this world, bringing light into darkness, making all things good and perfect where they were not perfect before. That is what God does. It's what he is doing. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.6. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. In 2 Corinthians 4.6, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's taking the words of creation... Let light shine in darkness. 
They're saying that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. By his word, let light shine in darkness. If God can speak light into existence and create everything by his word, he can save us. He can make you whole and good and perfect by his word, Jesus Christ. It's a story repeated. He makes all things good by the power of his word. It's what he's doing in and through you if you are in Christ. That is your future. That is your destiny. That is what God is doing now. And at the end, he will declare over you, it's God. In Christ, we are good. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning for your creative power. And that your creative power will not be diminished, destroyed, or dismantled by any power in this world, for it is all under your sovereign control. And just as you created all things good, Lord, you recreate all things good. And one day we will live in a recreated world with recreated bodies, recreated hearts, a recreated church, a people, living in your perfect world, praising you. We can trust that you are doing that just as you have made all things, Lord. Let us today and let us this week praise you, our creator. Amen.